God gave me a word that's a little bit strong. Can y'all handle a strong word today? Uh, this is not an ear-tickling sermon. So if you came to be pleasured, this will challenge you. Challenges. Uh, listen, I, I was on my face yesterday preparing for this because it broke my heart. Um, I'm concerned for our nation. Are you? The cohesive element that keeps us together has been removed. And it almost feels as though it's a judgment for what we've wanted. We've wanted certain things that we know are wrong, but we want them anyway. God said, fine. And now we're reaping the, that we're reaping the results of our own behaviors in our culture. I personally don't think, I just don't know how much long we can exist the way we are. I honestly could see, I could see outbreaks of fighting in streets now because of what I feel. Do you feel what I feel? Yes. You feel it inside. It's not comfortable. I can, I can hardly watch anything. I mean, just everything you hear and see news-wise is just ridiculous. It's the age we're living in. And what people don't realize is that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Yes. Hebrews 12 says, so that those things that remain cannot be shaken and they will produce a kingdom that will receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? So Jesus is coming back, but he's coming back for a church ready. For some reason, we've allowed ourselves in America, particularly, I believe, to drift. And God's saying, come back. That's what I hear. So uh, today, we're on this little series called Faithful. And the question is, am I a convert or am I a disciple? So I want to examine that a little bit. And uh, since the presence of God was so strong, I just felt like we should go into it. Is that good? So if you're with us the first time, welcome to Victory Church. So we have what our staff calls, y'all don't know this, but we, uh, you know, we prepare our services and the lights and the music and all that stuff. But uh, we always have HSM. Everybody say HSM. HSM stands for Holy Spirit Ministry. And when he manifests, we throw everything out the, uh, to the side. And we do it his way, not ours. Is that good? He doesn't always do that. Sometimes God says, just go ahead. That's fine. Other times he says, do it a different way. So today I feel a different way. So in the sheet here, I've got seven things you want to consider about being a disciple of Jesus. I want to say this. I think we have lots of converts today, but few disciples. I want to talk about that in some detail. Seven things to think about. Number one, God's asking for a deeper level of commitment. How many would agree with that? Uh, from his people today. The world is pushing back against not only Christianity, but against rules, against laws, against anything that encumbers, against any kind of personal restriction. How many understand that? Particularly in Western cultures. Eastern cultures, this is uh, manifesting as totalitarianism, tyranny, rule by force. So that's the way it manifests in, in cultures that are not democratic. Democratic cultures, like, let me do what I want to do, and it's going to end up in rule by force. Because the spirit of Antichrist is loose in the, in the world. How many know that? Uh, one of our missionaries came back, uh, I just had, and he hasn't been on Facebook in forever, and, and that's John Routon. And, uh, and I just noticed he just come, he comes back to the States all summer. He stays in India, he's in India, upper India, and they're having some real trouble in India with, uh, with persecution and such. And, and the first thing he said was, here's what he said. I, he, I haven't seen, he hadn't been able to post in India because they'll, I mean, they'll come and, and uh, make him leave because that's really tough there. But when he got back, he said, the spirit of Antichrist is strong in America. 
Now that comes from a man who doesn't live here, hasn't been here uh, for a good while. But you know, when you leave and come back, you feel things that, you know, to us, we've become sensitized to. How many get it? It's just a different world. Things are polarizing in such a, a strong way. And that, see, that's in the culture. Anything in the culture, it'll drift over into the church world. And this idea of, my, uh, of me, mine, my, and mine. See, that's, that's really strong. I want it my way. You don't do it my way. And so in church life, it's manifest that now churches, instead of catering to the glory of God, we've catered to meet people where they are and we've dumbed the whole thing down. And I hear God saying, we need to shore this back up. Put first things first. Seek first, not last, not second, not third or even last. Seek first the kingdom of God. And what we've done is sought first the kingdom of man. Because if I don't do it a certain way, people won't come. So today, you got to have a really hot Facebook page and Instagram. I know. We advertise on, I mean, we do all the same things too. Facebook, we do all these things. You know, we want to be cutting edge. Yeah, sure. But, but you know what? In essence, in essence, we're catering. We're catering to that me, my, and mine attitude that is pervasive. It has, it has absolutely um, invaded the households of America. Is it true? So I got to go kind of slow today. Can we do it? I, I'll, I'll go fast and slow. We'll see. So, uh, and, and what it has produced, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I was in India back in the late 90s. I'll never forget. I was in Calcutta. I've been there several times doing mission work, missions work. And, um, and I, there, there was this really ornate, there's a very ornate Hindu temple worth untold millions and millions of dollars, just ornate. Big steps getting up to it, take your shoes and socks off, and I don't like to take my shoes and socks off to anybody, for anybody. Walk up, and, and it's, just, it's just a huge place. And, uh, and all the way around the perimeter of that place, they, the God told us about this God. They, they got millions of gods in India. And they had some of them prominent, you know, that were on uh, statues and such uh, on the exterior of the perimeter of the, um, of the uh, place to worship in the Hindu temple. And uh, so I was walking here. And then we got to the very end. There's Jesus on a, on, a, on a white horse. And I said, is that who I think it is? And he said, yeah, that's Jesus Christ. I said, Jesus Christ is in a Hindu temple? He said, oh, yeah, we just stick him up here. Sure. <laughs> and what you've got to be careful about with many of these cultures that worship false gods, whether it's really idolatry like they do have in India or, or they have icons that they bring into their homes and they burn incense and give lays of flowers or fruit and such, is that is you, you go to evangelize these areas and they'll say, well, I like the, oh, Jesus sounds wonderful. You preach your heart out, oh, Jesus, that sounds wonderful. Well, they'll just take Jesus and stick him with the rest of their gods. And they'll keep burning their incense and laying their lays of flowers and, and giving their fruit and sacrifice under their tire before they leave home on the car so that, so that they'll be protected from the viciousness of some of these other gods and they're worshiping that God. So see, they, instead of being devoted to Jesus, he's just another one. Now, that's what we've done in America. We've said, Jesus, I want you, but I want you while I'm having my best tea and my best coffee 
And I'm doing the favorite thing I like to do. As long as you don't demand anything from me, well, Jesus, you can sit on the shelf of my life and I can sing to you and call you Lord, praise you. As long as you don't demand anything from me, I'm good. Now, that is what we have done. And our culture is falling apart. How many hear me? I know it's summertime and I know it's vacation time and my brain gave me a big problem with all this because we're supposed to be relaxing in the summer. This is challenging. Well, um, the Apostle Paul, I mean, he saw in the spirit the future. Second Timothy's talking to Timothy. Timothy was pastor of a church in Ephesus we'll talk about in a little bit and he was training, this, training him and this is just before the apostle Paul was decapitated for the cause of Christ. And he said this, I solemnly urge you, 2 Timothy 4, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, encourage your people with good teaching for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires. Did you hear that? And will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth, that's the word of God, and chase after myths. Myths aren't necessarily bad things. Myths aren't necessarily negative things but they are a compromise for truth and they're void of an ability to challenge your life. Some of the best messages I've ever heard have brought me the greatest challenge. Just like some of the really the best times in my life were the most challenging times because they made me face me and face what I'm not and face what I ought to be, and face where I hurt, face my pain. They changed me. We don't want that today in the church. We want what feels good, sounds good, exciting, makes me shout. I like to shout. I like to sing. I like to dance before the Lord. But sometimes we need the challenge, and today is the day we do. Number two, it's not the size of the group that God's looking for. It's the impact of one. How many hear that? Fill it out. It's not the size of the group that God's looking for. It's the impact of the one. How many know that big is not always right? Remember the spies? Twelve spies went into Canaan. Spy it out. He said, go, check it out. Let me t- come back, tell me what you see. Ten said, we can't go into that land full of giants. We look like grasshoppers. Two, Joshua and Caleb. The Bible says they had another spirit. They said, you know what? No matter what it looks like, no look, matter what we feel like, when you compare our enemy to God, <laughs> he's bigger. We can do it. The two were right. The ten were wrong. The crowd's not always correct. And what we as Americans do is we always follow the crowd. I don't mind our church getting bigger. It's okay. But you know what? I don't want it getting bigger because of enthusiasm created by people. 
Early 1980s, I was a part of a church. We had a 1,200-seat building. We had 5,000 people. Sunday morning was a zoo. I mean, a zoo. The police were out directing traffic. We got people saved just because they got filtered into our parking lot from the nuts traffic on the road in front of the church. I'm not kidding. We moved from that building to a 3,000-seat building. And all of the pizzazz left. And you know what people were driven to? They were driven to the excitement, not necessarily the spirit of Jesus. This was happening today. How many hear me? John Wesley said this, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin, desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Isn't that a good word? No, it's notable that Jesus could have had large crowds that he trained to minister since it's a big world. The Middle East is a big place. But he chose 12 after a night of prayer. And one of them didn't fit. He's a traitor. Wow. It's challenging, right? God called Gideon, Judges chapter 6, said, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel from their enemy. And Israel had 32,000 fighting men. God said, too many. Whittled it down. They left them with 300 to face the enemy. No, it's not the crowd. It's not how big. It's the commitment the person has that determines success. How many would agree? Um, now, now, over the years in my leisure reading, I like, I, it's just something about it. I like to read books about army rangers or navy seals the special ops guys when i was a little boy in the 1960s uh they had this thing at our school that was patriotic and i used to sing that little uh that little uh, theme song that the special ops sing silver wings upon their chest fighting those brave men america's best men who mean just what they say those brave men of the green beret remember that well i like you know why i like that because these men give everything they've got. I read books like that because it tells me I need to give everything I've got that I'm in a battle. This is not playtime. This is real. Now I could die. People could perish if I don't do my part. So I love to read those books because, you know, just, just the commitment, these guys, three out of a hundred make it. Now, see that chap? That means commitment to death. And when they, you know, you can just take a few men, go into the enemy territory. I don't care how many people they're facing. They know what they're doing. They're committed to the cause, committed to die rather than turn around. And you know what they do? They whip some backside. God's looking for people like that in his kingdom. I wonder how many people he could find in here today. I wonder if he could find me if he asked. Just wonder. I just wonder. Revelation 2. It was a large church. It would be a mega church today. They had all the frills and thrills and all the things necessary to make ministry look enticing and really, really help people enjoy, you know. And it was a great church. In fact, of all the churches in, in, in uh, Revelation 1, 2, and 3, well, 2 and 3 that Jesus spoke of, those seven churches, he, he, he had nothing bad to say about the church. He, he didn't, they were doing good. He had some things to say about them, but they were doing good. 
They were being effective in ministry. They were faithful. They recognized, you know, uh, false doctrine. And, and uh, you know, they were doing good. They thought. But then Jesus had something to say to them. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you fall and turn back to me. Do the works that you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand. I'll take the anointing from you. And they were doing well. The one thing he said was, you're not giving me your whole, your all. You're reserved, you're reserved in your worship of me. Instead of first, I'm just kind of up there with everything else on a shelf. Revelation 3 the last church Jesus spoke of was Laodicea. The Laodiceans were very wealthy people. They had two things going for them. They made this black wool. Uh, when you made garments out of that black wool, they were some, I mean, some good-looking garments. Everybody wanted garments made out of the black wool from Laodicea. And because of the arid, dusty conditions of the Middle East, they had come up uh, with, this, um, with this eye salve, this, this, this uh, powder mixed with probably olive oil, and they would dab it on their eyes because the dust. I know when I ride my bike and there's a lot of pollen and such in the air, it affects my eyes, turn blood red sometimes because I'm going so long for, you know. And so I thought about that, and I thought about So they had this eye salve, and they rub it on their eyes. Everybody knew about Laodicea and eye salve, the, the, the clothing from Laodicea. And then Laodicea, uh, they had these hot springs, and people could go to the springs and, you know, jump, jump down in the water, just enjoy health benefits, you know. But they also had aqueducts from the, from the hot springs that were four or five miles away from the city. And the aqueducts would carry that water that started hot Five miles, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And nobody likes lukewarm. I mean, make it hot, you can drink some coffee. Or make it cold, that's good on a hot day. But lukewarm, nobody likes lukewarm. And so they thought they had everything. They thought everything was just wonderful. And Jesus said, I know all the things you do. That you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. But since you're lukewarm water, neither cold nor hot, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I have everything I want. And they did. I don't need a thing. That's America today. And you don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, poor, blind, and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold that's been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Also, buy white garments. See, he was looking at the black garments made from that black wool. Buy white garments for me so you'll not be shamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. They had it all naturally. They were missing the spiritual things. I correct and discipline everyone I love so be diligent and turn from your indifference. And he said, open the door. Open the door of your heart to me again. He was saying that to them. I believe he's saying that to us in America today. Number three, being in a consumer-driven culture. Our tendency is to look for everything in the life light of personal benefit right now. Is that true or not? Yes. That's what we do. What do I get in return for this? What's, how's it going to benefit me? Is it worth it? Is it worth my time? Is it worth my money? And, and that's how we make decisions today. And so if everything's not, I mean, even the local church, people come to a local church, it's kind of like church shopping. Well, let's see if you can do it right. Let's look at the lighting. How's the air conditioning? How's the music? How's the singing? How, how, how are you? How's that, pre- how's that preacher doing? Let me compare him with the other 10 I listen to every day on Facebook. 
It's that way. It's really sad. Can I just say this? Sometimes, see, see, being a consumer-driven culture, our tendency is to look at everything in the life of light of personal benefit right, right now. Let me tell you something about God. Sometimes the experiences of my life have been God will place me in a place I don't even like with people I'd rather not be around to hone the rough edges off. You know, I've looked back, you know, I'm old enough now, I can say, I couldn't say this when I was younger, and I can look back and say, you know, some of the most uh, chal- challenging times have, for me, have been the most changing times because they made me look in the mirror and look at me. What do I value? Why do I have to have it that way? What am I doing? What am I, th- what are the, why, why, why does it bother me that that person's acting that way? Why does it bother me that that church doesn't have that? I mean, you just don't know. I've had some scathing denunciation of some pastors I've been with. And I've been on staff. And I never told anybody. But in my heart, God knew. And he got to talking to me about it. And he dealt with my attitudes. He dealt with my behavior. Not, not my external behavior because it seemed right. But inside, he talked to me about me. Don't, don't, don't forget, God, God will come. God will come for your life. He'll sometimes come for your comfort. Was it comfortable? Was it comfortable when Joseph had to spend 13 years in prison? Was it comfortable to not see freedom that others enjoy for all those years? But it changed his life. And developed him into a man that could oversee the entire country of Egypt, which at the time was the strongest nation. It cost him something. Moses spent 40 years in the desert tending his father-in-law's sheep. God was developing his character. He probably loathed the day that God called him to do something significant. He probably loathed the day for 40 years. God, what are you doing? God, looks like I'm going nowhere. Looks like my life is over. Oh, God, couldn't you at least talk to me? Couldn't you at least let me go be around people? 40 years. We got two weeks where it seems as though the heavens shut up and we bellyache. 40 years. Then God appears in the, in the burning bush for the next 40 years. God sent Moses, the man of God, to deliver his people from bondage and to show the world who God's really like. It's preparation time. There's seasons of preparation, but there's seasons of youthfulness. We're in a season, if we let God do it, of preparation for what God wants to do in our future. And seasons of preparation are not comfortable times. They're challenging times of introspection. Deep thinking and prayer. How many hear me? Wow. So, being a consumer-driven culture, that's tough to deal with, isn't it? Because it's not about the now. It's about the bigger picture. Just realize that God's always looking at the bigger picture. How many hear me? Number four, God's call is for us to deny ourselves. I love J.B. Phillips' translation, 2 Corinthians 5. This hit me between the eyes one day, verse 16. We look at it like this, if one died for all men, then in a sense they all died. And his purpose in dying for them is that their lives should now be no longer lived for themselves, but for him who died. 
and was raised to life for them. Isn't that good? His purpose in dying for them is that their lives should no longer be lived for themselves, but for him who died and, was, and, and rose again for them. Every gospel, uh, I think Luke mentions it twice, Matthew mentions it twice. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four mention, if any man, Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, that's the first thing he says. Then take up his cross, his cross and follow me. We, we wear crosses on our neck today. Uh, women wear them as jewelry in various ways. We got crosses on our little Bible cover. And we have a cross on our car, and, you know, whatever. You know, some little emblem somewhere. Cross is a wonderful thing. No, no, no. It's first century. It was, uh, you saw a cross, you look away. A cross was barbaric. A cross was insane torture. You don't even want to think about a cross much less do anything where the Romans said, come here, capital punishment. No, no, please, anything but that. It was despised. And when Jesus said, take up your cross, he wasn't looking at an emblem of jewelry. He was looking at a barbaric thing that was insanely terrible. He said, if you come in after me, take up. He said everything wrong. He, he could have said, well, if you walk with me, you get forgiveness of sin, you get the glory of God, you get the joy of the Lord, you get healing for your body, you get prosperity, you get blessing, you know, you get the favor of God. No, he says, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross. See, all these other things may be true, but they're a side benefit, not the main. And we've made the side benefit the main. And we miss the whole thing. You get it? I didn't plan on saying all that. It just kind of comes out. Jesus is looking for our whole life, not just a part. You know, it reminded me, I came to mind here. Um, seems like Abraham was a pretty upright guy. Called the father of faith. God was happy with him. He had a little child of promise after 25 years of believing. Isaac was a teenager. I said, I want you to take him up top of Mount Moriah and uh, I want you to sacrifice your son. Yeah, it can't be real. That can't be right. That can't be God speaking to me. Why? You put him before me. He put the blessing, the answer, the very thing God promised ahead of God himself. He said, I want it back. I want him back. You've done the wrong thing with my blessing. In America... We've done the wrong thing with the blessing. You hear me? And he's asking us to go to the top of Mount Moriah, so to speak. And he's asking us to lay down the things we like that maybe not be sin, but that are keeping us from God's best. Those SEAL team guys, they have to lay down privilege. They have to lay down things that we enjoy if they're going to be the best. And if you want God's favor and blessing in this hour, things have changed. And he's asking us to go to the top of the mountain. There on top of that mountain, you know, Isaac said, well, where's sacrifice? You know, I got sticks on my back. He said, lay them down. Abraham said, lay them down. Well, where's the, where's the sacrificial animal? <laughs> 
Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. He'll make a way. Slay him down. I want you to get the, get the kindling ready. We're going to light it soon. And then Abraham looked at him and said, you are the sacrifice. And I can't imagine Isaac's response. <laughs> you don't kill me. You can't mean God wants me to die. Abraham said, no, God doesn't necessarily want you to die, but he wants me to die to what I get out of you. Laid him on the sticks. Strapped him down. He's wiggling and squealing. I would, would you? Daddy, please. Just before he killed him, raised his hand. Angel said, stop. You've not withheld your own. The thing that means the most to you, you've given away. I know I've got your heart. By the way we live, And what we do with our time, does God know he has our heart? Here's a telltale sign. If you're not challenged in life and everybody's smiling at you, you're probably not doing something right. Second Timothy 3.12, yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Listen to Jesus, John 15, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. The world would love you as its own if you belong to it, but you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they'll persecute you. And if they've listened to me, they would listen to you. Then listen to message paraphrase, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort They're uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even for, though they don't like it, I do. All of heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Jesus said, woe be to you when all men speak well of you. You don't want a persecution complex, but if you're always, everybody likes you, something's going on. Ask yourself, am I a convert or am I a disciple? Jesus came and told them, Matthew 28, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. Be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The word disciple is not something we use today. We don't, even, we don't even understand the term. The word convert, I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary, means to, conf- to change, transform, to turn. It's to turn an ideology from one thing to another. That's different than a disciple. There's a big difference. Big difference is one is an action person. The other one's kind of inert, just sitting there. They've changed their thinking They've changed what they like and value, but they haven't changed a lot else. 
disciple, one who receives instruction from another, one who accepts the doctrines of another and assists in spreading or implementing them. That's a person that gets involved. A person who's a pupil or an adherent of the doctrines of another. That word disciple literally comes from a Latin word into English and it means a pupil, a teacher, an apprentice from a craftsman. So you got like a finished carpenter and he's just really good. Like my grandfather was a finished carpenter and he was really good at making furniture. He made the furniture in my parents' home. I mentioned, I think, last week. Uh, he was just good at it. And so, you know, you got a finished carpenter. He says, well, come here uh, to a young man. I want to put you under my tutelage. I want to train you. These are your tools. This is the wood. This is how you do it. Watch this. Now, first century, a disciple, a learner, a student. Classrooms weren't like they are today. Today, you got a man lecturing, and generally, a lot of times, they're an idiot. I'm sorry. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a classroom professor, I apologize right now. But we have a lot of educated idiots in our universities today that don't know down from up or right from wrong and they're training our children to be rebels. That's why I said that. So if you hear this on video video or audio, please come and see me. I'd love to chat with you in my office. I have some things to tell you. Disciple, first century, Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He sat at his feet because he was watching his mannerisms. He's watching how he thinks, how he speaks, how he treats people, what he does with his time, how he, how he keeps his, his person, how he dresses his body, what he does with his facial expressions, how he addresses people he disagrees with. He's a disciple, he's a student, he's a learner, and what is he doing? He's imbibing everything that man is. See, that's a disciple, first century. You didn't learn out of a book, yeah, I got those three, 14 things memorized. no. And memorize a life. I don't like this illustration, but similarly, uh, those in Islam, they've got two things they look at, Quran and then the Hadith, which are the writings and sayings about the life of Mohammed. Now see, that goes right along with those times because a student was a person who studied the life of and did what that person did. So, coming to Christianity, can we say that I am a student, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ? That is, I'm looking at his attitudes, his behaviors, how he treats people, how he responds to his enemies, what he does with his time, what he values with his, think, with his stuff. Am I doing that with him with my life? Or am I, have I just, like the Hindus, just added Jesus to the things I like in my life? Oh, I want to worship Jesus, and I'll come to church on Sunday. Rest of the week, I am too busy to do anything else at church. I'm not here promoting church. I'm just saying it all kind of goes together. How many hear what I'm saying? You hear what I'm saying? So I've got Jesus in a compartment and I've got all these other things, and I just don't have a lot of free time. So, God, i got some time here. Hope you enjoy this today because you're probably not going to see a lot of me because i got a lot going on. That's today. Is that today? You know, again, following that same theme, as I conclude, uh, the stats are the average American Christian goes to church less than twice a month. I don't know how they come up with a point, 1.8. I don't know how you get that. 
How do you go to church point eight times? I don't, I don't get that. I don't know. If you're here, you're here. If you're not, you're not. I don't know. Anyway, just an idea. Number seven, Jesus emphasizes the cost of being a disciple. So I'm just going to read two passages and I'm pretty much done. Luke 14, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate. The Greek word there means love less. You must love less everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. Now, if you're looking to grow a big church, I don't think you'd be wanting to say that. Now, Jesus was looking at the individual impact of the one, not the biggest crowd, right? And that's what, that's, 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 that's his, that's what, the way he was thinking. If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, when he said that, they're like, Jesus, please, this is awful, barbaric, really, really? But don't begin until you count the cost for who will, would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it. Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money and then everyone would laugh at you. Then they would say there's a person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go start a war with, against another king without first sitting down with his counselors and discussing uh, whether his army of 10,000 could, could, could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. And if he can't, he'll send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy's still far away. So you can't become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Now, he's not saying give away your clothes, your car, your house, your bank account. He's saying love less. Put it at my disposal. Don't have anything in your life that's before me. One of the Ten Commandments, I'll have no other gods before me. So anything we make a god or anything that rules what we do with our time, our attention, and our behavior becomes our god. Or, or anything we use. How many hear me? To meet legitimate needs in an illegitimate way. They're gods to us. How many hear me? Luke 9 cost of following Jesus. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you everywhere you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. This seems so unkind of Jesus. Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's so, oh, jeez. Did you have to say it that way? But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God first. See, he was hitting at a heart issue in the man's life. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me say farewell, farewell to those at my home. He knew there was such an allegiance to them and that, he, and that person wanted their yes, wanted their smile. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow, that's pretty strong. Would you say that's kind of strong? Uh, one, one thing I missed earlier, so, so you know, you got, the, you got the Hindus have all their gods on their shelves. These other religions, other pagan religions do the same thing. They burn incense to icons at home. I have stories I could tell you about that. But so we, may, we don't do that here. We don't practice overt uh, idolatry. But we do practice idolatry in America in a similar way. So... Uh, in America, it's, it's, I have my leisure time, 
And I'm going to do what I want to do with my time, and I don't care what anybody thinks about it, even God. So I'm not going to make a commitment to be involved in a church because, you know, I've got this and this going on with my time, and that means I can't do that as much as I was. That's idolatry. I know that went over big. Uh, For other people, it's overeating. It's an addiction to enjoyable foods. When the stress comes, the binge starts. And then sometimes they even purge it. That's not good to say. For others, it's alcohol or drug addiction. Well, I'm so stressed with all I've got to do. When I get off, I'm going to take me a couple of shots. I'm not going to drive anyway, and nobody's going to know. That's idolatry. Or they abuse prescription medication. I don't feel good today. I just need something to kind of help me out. So, you know, I had this operation. I still got some Oxycontin over here in the bottle. So I'm going to take a couple of those the next few days. Looks like I got enough. In fact, you know, I never used the whole prescription. I think maybe I'll go fill it again. That, my friend, is idolatry. Or, or now people use pornography. Somebody said that's the new crack. Men, now also women, get high on pornography and lust. Makes me feel good. What's that stuff? No, that's meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. How many hear me? Then there are other people, their icon on the shelf is compromising with their friends. Well, I want my friends to like me. I want my unsaved friends to enjoy my company, so I'm not going to say anything about their lifestyle. I'm not going to talk about what they're doing, and, you know, and then I'm just going to be involved in this and this and this and this and this, and, you know, my time with God and my church life, and that's all got to be put on the side because my friends, are. it's important that I be accepted by all of my friends. The ones that are saved and the ones that are, that's really important. I value that. If my friends don't smile at me, I might have to go take some. And then others, it's the love of money. So they say, well, you know, I've got this business, but you know, you know, I can cut the corner here. I can cut, I know the law says this, but I'm doing this and this and this. And they break the law because they'd rather make an extra buck or two. And it denigrates conscience. And before they know it, Money is their God. So my question to me and to you, I mean, what's on my shelf? What is God to me wanting to say, Mitch, I want you to give it up. What to me represents Isaac to Abraham? So much so that God says, go up to the top mountain. Sacrifice that very thing you like to me. I got to have it. It's taking my place. This is not supposed to make us smile. This is supposed to make us say, God, what do you need for me? The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 13, he said, he said, examine yourselves and see whether you be in the faith. How's that? Is that good?